That was pianist, composer, and 1994 jazz master Ahmad Jamal playing Morning Mist. It's from his new CD, Blue Moon. Welcome to Artworks, the program that goes behind the scenes with some of the nation's great artists to explore how art works. I'm your host, Josephine Reed. Ahmad Jamal combines subtlety and virtuosity in his music. His playing revolutionized the use of time and space in jazz. Jamal knows when to hold back and when to go for the big effect. His extraordinary use of space in his playing, his allowing the music to breathe, has been a hallmark of his influential career. According to cultural critic Stanley Crouch, Jamal is second only to Charlie Parker in importance in the development of jazz after 1945. Ahmad Jamal certainly had a champion in Miles Davis, who credited the pianist many times for influencing his own approach to music. Ahmad Jamal is another of the many great jazz artists who was born and raised in Pittsburgh. It's fair to say he was somewhat of a prodigy. His piano studies began at age three. By the time he was 11, he made his professional debut with a sound strongly influenced by Art Tatum and Errol Garner. He joined the George Hudson Band in 1947 and two years later began playing with swing violinist Joe Kennedy's group, Four Strings. This led to the formation of his trio, Three Strings, which debuted at Chicago's Blue Note Club and later became the Ahmad Jamal Trio. 1958 was a banner year for Jamal with his remarkable live recording of Point Siena, which stayed at the top of the charts for over 100 weeks. And with that, Jamal's trio not only won great critical acclaim, but it became one of the most popular jazz groups playing. Although Jamal has mostly worked in trios with piano, bass, and drums, his pianistic virtuosity has made him an honored guest with many orchestras. Jamal has also won considerable acclaim with his many compositions. His approach has been described as chamber jazz-like, and he's experimented with strings and electric instruments as he's collaborated with musicians across genres. Ahmad Jamal received many awards and honors, including recognition in 1994 as an NEA jazz master. In fact, I caught up with Ahmad Jamal right before the 2012 Jazz Masters concert last January. We spoke in the studios at Jazz at Lincoln Center. Here's our conversation. First of all, welcome, Ahmad. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you very much. Okay, here's my, my burning question. Yeah. What is it with Pittsburgh and music? Is, is it something in the water there? That's what a book is being written, titled... <laughs> Pittsburgh and the Water? Yeah, yeah. It's phenomenal, like New Orleans, like East St. Louis, like Kansas City. Philadelphia is Pittsburgh, too. That's Pennsylvania. So we group those together. <laughs> but when you have this grouping, Billy Strayhorn, I sold papers to his family when I was a kid. He'd gone with Duke. Earl Garner and I went to the same grade school. He's my senior, of course, but we're in the same... League, Pittsburgh, Earl Wilde, the exponent of Liszt, bass player named Ray Brown, pianist named uh, Earl Hines, trumpeter named Roy Eldridge, two drummers, one an ex-patriot, Kenny Clark and Art Blakey, and a newcomer, George Benson, the great Stanley Turn team, and a little dancer named uh, Gene Kelly. And Andy Warhol's there somewhere, and I can go on and on and on. That's just the beginning. It's amazing. And don't forget Billy Eckstein, the, the great musician, balladeer, and legend, the great B, who created a style in his clothes alone, let alone his singing. Those are for starters. 
what was it like <laughs> when you walked down the street where you're just hearing music everywhere? Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> now, when did you start playing piano? Now, it took a long time to decide, three years old. What kept you for three years? <laughs> One of my great uh, influences, Earl Garner, he started at three as well. It, it happens. It doesn't happen every day, but it happened with me. It happened, happened with Earl. And you studied classical piano at first. Well, that's a word that <laughs> that rubs me the wrong way. <laughs> I studied European classical and American classical because this word we call jazz leaves something in me wanting. Tell me what? There are only two art forms that develop in the United States, in my opinion, American Indian art and this thing we call jazz. I'm not paranoid about the word, but they never intended for this to be a sophisticated, to say the least, art form and one that's instrumental in putting up buildings like the one we're in, the JALC building. This is what happens in the jazz community, so it's up to us to redefine what we want to call it. I coined that phrase some years ago, American classical music. That's, that's just what it is. Duke didn't call himself a jazz musician. George Shearing is multi-dimensional like all of us are. He, can play, he could play the Mozart concerto, and he could write uh, Lullaby in Birdland. You're not going to find that in the European classical community, this multi-dimensional ability. One-dimensional most of the time, 90% of the time, when you talk about European classicists. And in order for us to be successful, Joe, we have to know the best of both worlds. I was playing Franz Liszt when I was 10 years old in competition. I can't play it now because I have to uh, stick to what pays a bill. And the American classical music is what I prefer. And I uh, uh, still am able to run through my basic repertoire when it comes to the European classical music, but I also can run through the repertoire of American classical music as well. So when people come to me and say, oh, I play classical music, get away from me. I don't want to hear that. I play classical music too. Duke played classical music. Ben Webster, who gave me a pair of cufflinks when I was a kid, he played classical music. And Paul Gonzalez, all of us are classicists. But it's up to us to redefine what we want to call our art form. I'm the one that took a, a straightforward, a pioneering approach and called it American classical music. And I, uh, I just talked to a man who calls his program Al Carter Bay in, in Chicago. He calls it American classical music in a jazz idiom. So I don't care who gets credit for it. It's being echoed all over the world now. That's what it is. Long explanation, but I hope it works for yeah, you. Well, I'm mindful of what Duke Ellington said when somebody had said, you write jazz, and he said, look, there are two kinds of music. Good and bad. Good and the other kind. <laughs> <laughs> and I think that's right. Yeah. American classical music is very challenging to play, and I mean that in, in the best possible way because it, it's so multifaceted and so complex. Mm, it's a study, that's for sure. And they say, oh, you improvise. So did Mozart. So did Bach. All musicians are improvisers. <laughs> and to confine that to the, the American classical field is ridiculous because there's so many things that we don't have that Mozart thought about, but he didn't necessarily write it down. I'm the same way. If it's very, very important, I think it's going to make a statement in music, then I'll write it down, Joe. But we're all improvisers. But that's a, an acquired skill. Improvisation is an acquired skill. You just don't sit down and improvise. That's one of the facets of this wonderful American classical music world is that we've perfected improvisation down to a, to, to a T, some of us. 
but it also is evident in the European tradition, too. So we're all improvisers. Now, I want to go back and talk about three strings, Mm. three strings, when you first started that. Quite historical. It's quite historical. You didn't have a drummer. You had a guitarist. Ray Crawford, the wonderful guitarist from my hometown, again, Pittsburgh. Pittsburgh, (laughs) a bassist, and you. Was that unusual not to have a drummer? Well, it was first Master Joe Kennedy, violinist. He was the leader of the four strings, which group I joined after Sam Johnson left. He was the first pianist with the four strings, a a, uh, group that Mary Lou Williams deemed her favorite. And the only uh, recordings of record uh, something that Mo Ash did on disc record. Mo Ash, I think, was the entrepreneur at that time. And Joe's group was called the Four Strings. So when Joe left Chicago and decided to go back to Pittsburgh, I inherited the three strings. So that's how it came about. And eventually you let go of the guitarist and brought in a drummer. Well, that happened because we were working the uh, Embers on 54th Street. In this fair city. And uh, someone came up to the piano. We were in a mission group at that time, Joe. Place was packed. People, Jackie Gleason, Peggy Lee, everybody. Joey Bushkin was the main, was the featured artist. So I'm the intermission artist, intermission act, whatever you want to call it, or intermission group. Someone comes up to the piano, evidently wanting a request in his drunken state, sets a glass of red wine, and spills it all over the keyboard. So I jumped up, went downstairs, put on my coat, and Israel Crosby and I drove all the way back in my station wagon at that time, all the way back to Chicago, and Ray stayed in New York. That's how the addition of the drummer entered. Ray stayed in New York, so I had to get a replacement for him. The replacement happened to be drums because I figured that time maybe it was a little too subtle with the guitar bass. That's a very subtle group, Mm -hmm. and some of my most interesting recordings were made with Ray Crawford, Israel, Crosby, and myself. My first Ponciana was a lovely thing we did in 1955 for Epic Records. And that's one of my favorite recordings of Poinciana, but it wasn't a multi-dimensional hit that came about in 58. It sold a million copies. The thing stayed on the charts for 108 weeks, which was the first in the history of uh, instrumental music in my genre, 108 weeks. But the first recording of Poinciana was done with Ray Crawford. Gorgeous. It, and it is beautiful. Yeah. I actually listened to it this yeah. morning. Poinciana is a phenomenon in so many ways because it was critically acclaimed and at the same time stayed on top of the charts, as you said, for so long. And this is very unusual for instrumental music. It's You can, what, count on, what, two hands? Well, we don't get the hits. The human voice gets the, hit, the hits, and, and uh, it's very difficult for instrumentalists to get that kind of uh, reaction. Yes, the human voice, uh, yeah, the singers get the hits, but we don't. There are a few of us, Herbie Hancock, myself, Dave Brubeck, and then you have to start counting. There are a few more. On a cumulative basis, Oscar Peterson and, and others, but this was one record that stayed on the charts top 10 for 108 weeks.
Grammys owe me, they owe me a special award for that because Grammys were initiated a couple of years hence, but the right thing to do is to give me an award for that record that stayed on the charge for 108 weeks instrumentally. Unbelievable. You have the touch. The touch you have, it's so light, so sweet. You play with dynamics on the keyboard, and you really move throughout the keyboard. And as Miles Davis said famously, you have space. You let the music breathe. How did you develop this? Pittsburgh. <laughs> Back to Pittsburgh. That's, that's the key. All of us in from Pittsburgh, we have our... Earl had his approach pianistically. Billy had his approach when it came to compositions, orchestration. George Benson has his. No one plays like Stanley Turrentine. No one plays bass like Ray Brown. And no one played like Kenny Clark or Art Blakey. And no one sang like Billy. So we're Pittsburghers. We were unique, <laughs> if I may say Pitt Pittsburgher, instead of Pittsburghite or whatever. I like whatever. Pittsburgher. I think it's much better. <laughs> Anyway, it works for me. So that's here again. That's my answer. Because we grew up in a, a tremendous environment for the, the fledgling or the person aspiring to be a musician. Like New Orleans. You know, all my drummers come from New Orleans. And not purposely, but just it just happened. The great drummer, Vernel Fournier, and Herlin Roddy left home. That's the first job on the road was with me. And the phenomenal Idris Muhammad who wrote the uh, drum music for Hair. He got sick of playing in the Hair and just went out with Roberta Flack. But these are some of the drummers that have shared the stage with me, and I'm thankful for that. So there's another phenomenon. Yeah. What do you think that's about, Amand? I it's, mean, do you think that it, there needs to be a critical mass? Well, first of all, not to be redundant, that is phenomenal. It happens that way. And that's New Orleans. Mm -hmm. New Orleans is perfect. It's perfect showcase for uh, nourishing talents like the Marcellus family, Vernel Fournier, Louis Armstrong going back, back, back. Come on, that's New Orleans. And Pittsburgh's the same way. And, and you know, St. Louis is no second base. That's East St. Louis, Miles Davis. And St. Louis, where my first band was headquartered, that was my first job at 17 years old on the road with the St. Louis band. And who came out of that band? Clark Terry, me, Ernie Wilkins. So St. Louis is another one of those areas. We, it's very interesting. It is interesting. I think the first composition of your own that you recorded was Ahmad's Blues. That's correct. 1951? That's correct. What was that like going into a studio with your own work? Well, I was, uh, Ahmad's Blues came about, I was working with a song and dance team called the Codwells out of St. Louis again. And I guess I was blue because I had to be the drummer, I had to be the guitars, I had to be the, the pianist, everything. Because they just held instruments, they didn't play them. So you had to be a really on the job to support this group. And the pianist that followed me was one of my favorites, Ray Bryant, the late Ray Bryant. So Amish Blues was written when I was 18 years old in Philadelphia when we had a layover. And I was very sad. <laughs> And I wrote Amish Blues then. The catalyst was my career with the song and dance team, the Codwells. And, of course, it became one of the numbers used in Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf on Broadway for two years. Did you know that? But it wasn't my recording. It was Miles' recording with Red Garland. 
And then uh, later on, Marlena Shaw, bless her, sang the lyrical version, the lyrics done by Bob Williams, the late Bob Williams. Then Natalie Cole did a later version. So it's a good copyright for me. What's the difference for you between going into a studio and recording, doing work there, and performing live? Your question was the studio versus remote recording. Yeah. That's the correct name. People say live. They're all live. The correct term is remote, removed from the studio. I like both. Sometimes the studio gives you a more clinical, sterile thing than uh, uh, the remote recordings. So I do both. I, I just did a uh, studio CD here in New York. I don't record in New York often. I did uh, recording at Avatar Studios, Blue Moon. fun in the studio, a lot of fun on, on uh, doing remote. I like them both. They both work. Do you have a favorite album or CD? The next one. <laughs> <laughs> you and Miles Davis had mutual admiration society. He also spoke so highly of your work and was influenced by it. Sort of a fan, wasn't he? Yeah, he was. <laughs> yeah, well, we accept that. Miles uh, was one of my well-wishers, and of course, him and one of my favorite writers, Gil Evans, Miles Plus 19, didn't do rumba, which is another one of my good copyrights, a few I have. I wrote that in 1951 or thereabouts, and Miles recorded that. And the nice thing about it is when I write, I write, I think, orchestrally, so it was not too difficult for that to be uh, adapted to big orchestra. So that's what Gil did, and I admire Gil, but a lot of people don't know about Gil Evans, but he goes back many, many uh, years. So they did a wonderful job, don't you think so, with oh, New Rumba? Yeah. Have you listened to it? I have oh, listened thank to you. it. It was wonderful. Merci beaucoup. It, it was just wonderful. <laughs> okay, you, you wrote that in the 50s. You've been at this for a long time. How has the recording industry changed? In Is the... there a recording industry now? Yeah. Just for a few of us. It's, it's another thing now. Some of the stuff out there has nothing to do with music. It's, it's terrible. This assault on intellectual property. And we have all these things. We have the iPods, the strawberries, the blackberries, the blueberries, download, upload, the computers, the this. The new phones. Has the quality of life improved? And where's the record industry? Even the movies are being assaulted. People are downloading movies. This is not right. So what happened to the culture of ethics? You can't legislate honesty. You can't do that. If it doesn't come from the, the integrity inside the person, you're not going to do it. I don't care how many laws you pass. So we 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 got a problem. The record business, except for a few of us, few of us are still able to go in the studio. I'm, I'm talking about instrumentally. There are all sorts of stuff out there that's still making records. I'm talking about the music business. And unless you're established, it's very difficult for a youngster to get a record contract now. They're non-existent. Unless the youngsters make their own records, that's it. They have to make their own records. They have to sell them at the venue, the distribution. What happened to uh, the big record stores? You had the big record store here on, on Broadway. Tower Records. What happened to Tower? It's gone. What I wonder is record producers. I'm thinking about like a Norman Grants or a John Hammond and the shift away from that to much more, I think, and 
I don't know if you agree, a business model. They're not necessarily musically inclined. We just lost another one. You know, I've, I've been recording for French companies for the last 15, 16 years. And I had gone from Jean-Francois de Baer's company, which is Birdology. We were distributed by Polygram and others, and we were distributed by Francis Dreyfus, Francis Dreyfus. Francis just passed. And you're talking about an endangered species. Ahmed Aragon, Neshua Aragon, Ralph Caffel was still around, Leonard Chess, whose company I helped establish, Chess Check and Argo, now they have Cadillac Records, a movie out there about Leonard Chess's. But the jazz division, the so-called jazz division, I started with Leonard. He had four artists, basic artists. He had Bo Diddley, Chuck Berry, Muddy Waters, and me. And $52 million later, he sold a company, and people he sold it to lost every dime. When you talk about these kind of record people, they're endangered species. I don't think I'm being nostalgic, but when I hear you talk about coming up in Pittsburgh or when you talk about St. Louis or, or New Orleans, there seems to have been a great camaraderie among musicians that I'm not sure I see as much today, and I could be wrong, but it, it doesn't seem to quite be there in the way that it was for you. You're absolutely right. That's one of the signs of the present era in which we live. The, the camaraderie is disappearing, and we are suffering because of that because I learned a lot from my uh, older predecessors, the people that came before me. I'm a piece of history. Duke Ellington's 25th anniversary, Carnegie Hall, 1952. Duke Ellington, Billie Holiday, Charlie Parker with Strings, Dizzy Gillespie, Stan Getz, and myself. I'm the only one living with the headliners. That's history. You think that was camaraderie? Of course. And that has stayed with me since. Because these are the people who went before me and who paved the way for artists such as myself. So the camaraderie is disappearing. It's dwindling down to a precious few. So talk about your experience making Blue Moon. The concept for Blue Moon came on one of my wonderful Steinways at home. I have two at home, and I love them. I've been with Steinway for years, I went over there on 57th Street with John Hammond on my right and Fritz Steinway on my left. They're both gone, but I'm still here. That was in 1960. That's a few years back. So uh, Blue Moon, I, I was playing a line on the piano at home. I said, this is Blue Moon. is history. Nine tracks later, we're releasing it at the Chatelet in, uh, in Paris. And the experience in the studio? It was great, because I had some remarkable musicians. Manolo Badrina, who's one of the world's great percussionists, and a man I love very much. I thank the few of his musical buddies. And a man that is certainly sought after in many places, Herlin Riley, who was with Winton for 17 years, and Reginald Veal, who was with went and before Herlin joined the band. They were my studio musicians and musicians of record on Blue Moon. Reginald Veal, bass, Herlin Riley drums, Manola, Badrina, percussions, and myself. You said, the more rules you observe in this life, the more soul you're going to get. The more what? Soul. Well, the more freedom. 
can, you can't get freedom unless you, you observe the rules. If you don't observe, people say, I want to be free, so I don't have to be. That's hogwash. You have to observe the rules. If you see a stop sign, if you're driving a car, do you stop? Of course, because you want to be free. You don't want the police stopping you and killing someone, so you have to observe the rules in order to be free. So uh, there's a joy in discipline that's much overlooked. Do you think music has to have a message? For me, it always has a message. When I play, I'm playing years and years of hard work, years of ups and downs, years of grief and, and joy and peace. And so it's, it tells a story. So a musician is telling his life when he's on, on, on the concert stage. He's performing his life. People don't know that, but that's what he's projecting, his life. And a lot of us, even though we don't sing, some of the compositions that we've interpreted beyond the wildest dreams of their composers, that's another thing that makes up this great business of American classical music. We've interpreted the compositions of some of the composers beyond their wildest dreams. Look at John Coltrane, a little trivia, my favorite things. That's how you know John Coltrane, not by his compositions necessarily, but by his interpretation of a little trivia thing, my favorite things. Poinciana is not my copyright, but what happened? I made a bigger hit out of a hit. And you got the Sarah Vaughns, the Paul Gonzalez's, and the Ben Webster's, who were so lyrical, and, and, and the uh, Lester Young's, Polka Dot and Moonbeams, all those wonderful things. Those are storytellers, all storytellers, every one of them. Coleman Hawkins, body and soul, storyteller. That's what made Coleman. He came up with this record. It's, it's, it's a historical record. That was a model, not only for musicians, but for the record business. And people like Stuff Smith and, and all the wonderful things that Ray Nance used to do with Duke told a story. That solo on Take the A Train that Ray Nance did, classic. But we're, we're, we're telling the story of our lives, though. Hopefully... We get to one or two people. Sometimes we get to thousands. It happens. Sometimes we get to millions. What advice do you have for a young jazz musician now, a young musician coming up? That's okay. You can say jazz. <laughs> <laughs> the young person aspiring to be an American classicist? Yes. <laughs> I say this all over the world when I do interviews. Have more than one exit door. Because if you only have one exit door, a fire breaks out, you may get trampled to death. What do I mean by that? If you want to be a performer and the doors are closed temporarily, don't get frustrated because you've gone to school and you've learned how to write or you've learned how to teach or you've learned how to conduct. Prepare yourself with more than one exit door so you won't get trampled to death and you can be places because you want to be, not because you have to be. And the only way you're going to do that is education. Not all the schools are perfect, but the value in seeking knowledge, even if you got to go to China, is much more important than being out in the street wandering aimlessly on at a too impressionable young age. And most of the time, when you're that young and you're out here and you're not in the educational system, you get destroyed because you don't know how to say yes, you don't know how to say no. 
And that's a sad story of uh, so many of our youngsters that get caught up in the world as opposed to being equipped for the world. Only way you can do that is to get education. And I mean spiritually and temporally on both sides. Ahmed Jamal, thank you so very much. And thank you for so many years of glorious music. Thank you, Joe. That was pianist, composer, and 1994 jazz master Ahmad Jamal. You've been listening to Artworks, produced at the National Endowment for the Arts. Adam Campy is the musical supervisor. Excerpts from Morning Mist, Autumn Rain, and I Remember Italy. From the CD, Blue Moon, composed and performed by Ahmad Jamal. Use courtesy of DL Media, Jazz Village. Excerpts from Blue Moon, from the CD, Blue Moon. Written by Richard Rogers, performed by Ahmad Jamal. Use courtesy of DL Media, Jazz Village. Excerpts from Woody and You, from the CD Blue Moon, written by Dizzy Gillespie, performed by Ahmad Jamal, use courtesy of DL Media Jazz Village. Excerpts from Point Sienna, written by Nat Simon and Buddy Bernay, recorded at a live performance by the Ahmad Jamal Trio in 2005. The Artworks podcast is posted every Thursday at arts.gov, and now you can subscribe to Artworks at iTunes U. Just click on the iTunes link on our podcast page. Next week, it's jazz master Benny Golson. To find out how art works in communities across the country, keep checking the Artworks blog or follow us at NEA Arts on Twitter. For the National Endowment for the Arts, I'm Josephine Reed. Thanks for listening. Thank you.